So, we are on, after a two-week hiatus, we are on number 102. Is everybody with me? Many people of new thought persuasion place exaggerated emphasis on manifesting health, wealth, and other symptoms of material success. I love that phrase. (laughs) He must have had fun when he came up with it. Health, wealth, and other symptoms of material success which they see as outward demonstrations of high spiritual development. The master's attitude toward these things was qualified. That's brilliant writing on Swami's part. Qualified. On the one hand, he considered that seeking such things for themselves could demand more energy than they are worth, like devoting the wealth of a nation to preventing snow from falling on the mountains in January. For the devotee of God, it is, he felt, a waste of energy to to strive too assiduously for outer perfection, which is ever and cannot but be evanescent. He counseled people, do what you can within reason to remain healthy and to achieve the worldly success you need. But remember, it is better to rise above outer conditions altogether so that they cannot affect you. He accepted that, since people live on many different levels of awareness, no one teaching in this respect can or ever should be applied to everyone. Illness can be a serious obstacle on the spiritual path, he said. So also can poverty. Do your best, again he continued, within reason, to achieve health and prosperity and to succeed at whatever you set your mind to do. On the other hand, keep those efforts proportionate to the true long-range goal of life, which is to find God. To devote all your energy to fulfilling your material desires, as so many people do, even in the name of spirituality, distorts their values, for it deprives them of the time they need for more important things. He never accepted any material blessing as proof of inner development, yet it can be an indication of such development. We should be grateful to God for them, he said, but we should be equally grateful to him if he removes them. For it is not material things that should command our gratitude. We should be grateful for, even exult in, life itself in its many costumes, remembering always that one of those costumes is death. We are the immortal offspring of infinite bliss. In bliss lies our true reason for eternal gratitude. Some of the Master's most advanced spiritually disciples were highly successful businessmen. The ability to succeed at anything is an aid in life, certainly, not a liability. The question is one only of proportion. We should give our energy where it is needed first. Many saints, he pointed out, have had serious illnesses. Many others have lived in poverty. The test of spirituality is one's inner state of consciousness and above all, the purity of one's love for God. The test of one's spiritual refinement, moreover, is his degree of freedom from ego consciousness. He once related the following story. There was a saint who fell ill. His disciples pleaded with him, Master, so many have been healed by your intercession. Why don't you pray to the Divine Mother to heal you too? This seemed to him not a bad idea. He accepted their suggestion. When he prayed, the Divine Mother appeared to him. Of all things, she rebuked him, you who have 
realize your oneness with the infinite and who have so many bodies to live through, want now by praying for this one little form to limit yourself to it? For shame. <laughs> the saint deeply regretted his error and prayed, Mother, your love alone is all sufficient. There was a time, and it was earlier on, you know, in the, in the course of life in this particular area, decades, several decades, because now I've been doing this for 30 years in this very spot, virtually. Um, when the whole spiritual revolution was really just getting underway and people were repudiating a lot of um, orthodox traditions and, and coming up with the phrase, he has new thought, which is what, what it was all called then, unity churches and churches of religious science and all sorts of others and you know everything is always a play of of one one thing needing to be balanced by another and then people taking that too far in the wrong direction and then having to come back and balance it out again and so I'm going to sneeze again my mother could be heard by the neighbors and I recently heard from one of my neighbors that I can be too <laughs> well, none of you live near me. <laughs> I can't be heard in building. You live in building five. <laughs> building two can hear me. <laughs> it's all right. That's just what can I say. All right, back to it. Um, when people were repudiating a lot of the religious tradition that poverty meant you were spiritual because of the tradition of St. Francis and a lot of the Catholic orders, that was a part of what you did. You read about the life of St. Teresa of Avila, it's, it's, it's really very touching, you know, just how completely they just stripped away everything. And all through Kali Yuga, that just complete repudiation of the material plane, part of it, Swamiji says, and he mentions that in here in another place, is that physical life was already so arduous. To create tapasya, you had to push it even a little farther. It was, it was sort of like it was just, it, it had to be extreme even to show in the, in the context in which they were living. But also there was, during the period of Kali Yuga, matter and spirit were highly separated. That's, that's the, the nature of Kali Yuga, is that the material world could not absorb the spiritual. You just had to repudiate one in order to be part of the other. So in the changeover after 1900, there was this sudden uh, and appropriate realization that this is a false, this is a false idea that somehow spirit and matter are entirely separate from one another. Because once you start with the truth, Sanat and Dharma, that everything is Satchitananda and everything in this world is a manifestation of spirit, how does the material manifestations of spirit become evil? And why is it so necessary to be so against it in order um, to consider yourself to be a spiritual person? You could see how it starts out that way. Also, all power is the same power. You know, everything is, is kundalini energy. Everything is attunement with being able to use the force of the universe. So as he comments in here, many of Master's disciples, several of Master's disciples, were self-made uh, businessmen, highly successful millionaires even. And he said it's not, uh, you know, to be able to succeed necessarily means that you have a lot of qualities in place that are also helpful for you spiritually. Determination, willpower, concentration, um, self-mastery, to be able to persevere, energy, 
um, intuition. And, and if you're applying all these to making money, it may not be as the same as applying them to realizing God, but if you know how to apply them, then when your goal becomes different, you'll know how to do it. Like Ramakrishna said about the actors and the dancers in Girish Gosha's theater troupe that were considered low caste, but he said, right now the god they worship is music and art, but they know how to worship. And when their god elevates, they will know how to worship. <clears throat> And some people who seemed more respectable really didn't know how to worship. They were just they just didn't have the focus. So when that necessary repudiation of the separation between spirit and matter began to take place, it, it went a little too far to the other side. And so then there was this thought, well, if poverty is not necessarily pleasing to God, then let's be wealthy. And this whole um, uh, sort of beginning to think how can we be instruments of this power to become masters of this plane and Swami Kriyananda it's a true that's also a true teaching Swami wrote the whole course material success through yogic power uh, yes is that what success and happiness through yogic principles I, I gave a course I called it manifesting through the power of yoga because it seemed uh, I just I wanted to get it more exactly where it, it felt to me but uh, when, when we were, when he first published that course, there was publicity that came out about it. You know, we were trying to describe it. And he was asked, Swami himself was asked, what's the difference between your course on prosperity and I think it was Jerome Robbins or someone who was very popular, Tony Robbins. What's the difference between your course and his course? Swamiji was asked. Swami's answer was very interesting. I am the disciple of a great master. That's how Swami answered the question. Yeah, and it was a very interesting. Often, he often spoke about how master would just make a statement that required a huge intuitive leap, and then you would have to go back and sort of figure out, you know, what, what were the steps between the question and the answer he gave. And that was a marvelous one like that, because what... Uh, what Swami was talking about there in his material success course is that he was talking about how to master the material plane by mastering the spiritual plane. Because the, the higher reality has control over the lower reality. And so many people figure out how to master the material plane essentially from the level of the material plane, how to negotiate, how to dress, how to stand up for yourself, various things like that, which are not necessarily wrong, but they're, they're not working from the level of being a disciple of a great master and having access um, to the power of the universe and then directing it however you may choose to direct it. In fact, we had fun with that uh, description of the course going from there, talking about how um, India used to be the wealthiest country on the planet, the wealthiest civilization on the planet. When Marco Polo went to India, however many centuries ago that was, and came back and talked about the wealth of the Maharajas and the gold and the jewels and the Taj Mahal and so on, people simply didn't believe him. To tell a Marco Polo became synonymous with telling a tall tale that couldn't possibly be true. But eventually, the British discovered that in fact there was enormous wealth in this country, that country, and they moved in and took it. 
and England gradually became very wealthy and India gradually became very poor. Um, but when we were talking about this course, we were talking about the fact that um, at that same time, India took the knowledge of what really made its wealth and essentially took it to the Himalayas because it was a, it was a wealth they really didn't want the British to have nor did the British have the insight to want it. So that whole understanding was taken to the Himalayas and just hidden there, because that was the real power. It, it wasn't the gold and so on were just symptoms of that power, but it was the real power. But then Swamiji, as a disciple of Babaji and of Master, just brought that whole energy back again to, to show us that spirit and matter can be united in fact, Swamiji made a very interesting statement once, which I still, I still don't really quite exactly understand. He said, um, failure is only a lack of attunement with the divine. That was his phrase. And I, when he said that, I said, Swamiji, I often say to people, well, you fail or succeed according to your karma, but you're saying here that, you know, if you attune yourself properly, success will be inevitable. And he just said yes, and he never really reconciled that with me. And I've always, I've always just sort of keep that in the back of my mind. But another way of saying that is, um, you know, failure is a teacher. And it's not like your, our destiny is, it also depends on what you mean by fail. And fail can also be a question of your own setting the wrong or the right goal, your own state of consciousness, whatever it is that you're talking about. So on one hand, we have this, we had this new thought movement, which really, and still exists, about we can manifest whatever we want. And there's all kinds of different systems that are telling you how you go about uh, bending the material world to your um, idea of what you want it to be. And it's, a, it's actually a very interesting line that we're walking because um, there's a story of Swami Vivekananda, which is a very interesting story in this context, when a devotee or person who came to one of his lectures came up and said to him in a very weak way, you know, I would like to, re I want to realize God. And the story is told that Vivekananda said to the man, can you lie? And the man said, oh, no, sir, I, I would never tell a lie. He said, can you steal? He said, no, I would never think of stealing. He says, well, before I can teach you about God, I want you to lie so convincingly that everybody is fooled and steal so effectively that you never get caught. He said, when you've mastered those skills, you can come back and I'll teach you about God. I mean, it, it, whether this is apocryphal or not, it's still an interesting story. But the point of, the, of it, as it is explained, is that he saw that this man was not at all pious, that he was filled with avaricious desires, but he just didn't even have the energy to pursue those desires. And he didn't have a genuine desire for God. He, he just didn't have enough energy to do anything that was really his to do. And Vivekananda saw that until he manifested enough energy, which he would only get motivated for, for his selfish desires, there was no possibility that he could come and really find God. Now, it's a, I presume it's an apocryphal story, but it's an interesting one in any case. And in that same context, when you read in the Bhagavad Gita commentary of Swamiji's, when he's talking about the gunas, 
um, tamasic, downward pulling, contractive energy, rajasic, just activating energy, and sattvic energy, which is elevating energy, and how all of us are a mixture of those three gunas, and that to balance our consciousness, we have to overcome tamasic energy with rajasic energy and then gradually make that sattvic and then transcend the gunas altogether. But we have to do it first by gaining mastery over the gunas and only when we have mastery over them can we go into the stillness. And the quest for excellence and the quest for success is the process of dealing with the gunas. Because if we watch ourselves and see what causes us to either succeed or to fail, it's almost always some aspect of tamasic energy, which is holding us back, or rajasic energy, which we're not able to direct properly, that causes us to make bad decisions, to not work hard enough, to not have intuition, to become afraid, whatever it might be. And in the process of learning to attune ourselves sufficiently to succeed, what we actually end up doing is we end up mastering the gunas. And then when we master the gunas, then we have really succeeded. And, and this is why in, in, in my life with Swamiji, you know, excellence was expected. It, he, he didn't really, but excellence was a, a, not externally defined, but it was, it was defined by the determination of your own effort and how, how clearly and dynamically you worked with yourself, not, you know, some measurement or grading on a curve or something. I was talking about a, one of our school plays that Swamiji came to see, and it was, it was a very well done production, um, but not every artistic choice was in keeping with Swami's taste. And at one particular point, he raised it, or I think I raised the question about, what did you think about such and so song? And he said, it's not the decision that I would have made, Swami said. And then, because we were on the subject, he said, in fact, almost none of the decisions were the decisions that I would have made. He said, but they were all, they all had the integrity of the person who made them. And so Swamiji approved completely because the individual had worked to the limit of their sense of how things should be. And he respected that, even though on an objective level, he didn't really... The result was not his taste, so to speak, or his sense of how of the possible. But within the person, the person had succeeded. So there's that side of it, which is that we can't just uh, excuse bad work on the basis of what does success matter anyway. We can't just excuse you know, our lack of uh, having the symptoms of material success, especially if it begins to um, interfere with our capacity to do what we're supposed to be doing. Like he says, you know, illness can be an obstacle on the spiritual path. Poverty can be an obstacle. And we need to, to try our very best um, to, you know, to work around and to work over those. But what really matters is the consciousness that we develop. So Master was always having to balance these realities to make sure that people didn't duck one responsibility for another either direction. Um, that's why he talked about simple living instead of lady poverty. It was lady simplicity. And Swami always talked about simple living, but his concept of simple living in America 
you know, he always lived at, especially at the beginning when, when we were very, we meaning the sort of the early, early um, members of Ananda, we were very confused as to where this balance lay. We really had a very, uh, we were very influenced by past lives and past impressions and had a very hard time really understanding where we were standing. Uh, a lot of us came either from very simple Indian tradition, Indian ashram tradition, or we came from an American Indian tradition in our past, all of which lent itself to having a very different relationship with the material plane. I vividly remember the 1970s at Ananda village at the meditation retreat. I was walking up at the meditation retreat this uh, about two weeks ago when we were up there with Durga, and she was... Um, they, re they remodeled that uh, rammed earth uh, hay bale temple that they have up there and they made a beautiful little trail of white rocks and we were walking on the trail of white rocks and when you walk on that crushed gravel it goes crunch, 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 crunch the whole time. And I was remembering 73, 74, very, very early. In the very first years I arrived in 71 we didn't even have gravel on the path. Who had the money to buy gravel to put on the path? You had a perfectly fine path right there. And in the summer, it was made out of that extremely fine dust. And once the roots were removed, it was wonderful. And a lot of us didn't wear shoes. You just, we just went everywhere in the summer barefoot, and we'd walk in that very soft dust. And I, I had all these... I don't know, fantasies is the only thing you can call them, or romantic notions or past life memories. I don't know. Walking barefoot through those forest trails on that dust, and I'd never been to India. I didn't go to India for 20 years almost. But I had this picture in my mind of some little Vedic village and just walking through barefoot through our little huts and the whole thing. It was fantastic. Then somehow we got the money to put gravel down. As soon as you put gravel down, one, you had to wear shoes... And two, it went crunch, 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 crunch. And whereas you used to be able to walk everywhere in perfect silence, all of a sudden it was crunch, 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 crunch. It was really quite startling. Many years later I read uh, in the book about uh, Crazy Horse. I can't remember now the name, The Journey of Crazy Horse. Very, very good book, but I could only read it once in my life because it was too heartbreaking. <sighs> you know, the, real, the end of these, of these whole tribes are just so painful. Very dharmic and very honorable on one level, but on the other level just breaks your heart. You can't stand it. But he had to, Crazy Horse, as the leader of his, his whole tribe, had to make the decision of whether or not they basically defied the white men until every single person was killed, man, woman, and child, or whether they accepted moving onto the reservations, moving away from their land, and at least not being obliterated. And he, he just had to talk step by step. But one of the decisions he had to make, which I just understood so vividly, they had always made their teepees out of buffalo. And, and buffalo hide, who knows, I don't know. Buffalo hide is different than deer hide or anything else. There's all, they all have these very distinct realities and their teepees were always made from buffalo hide. And buffalo hide was so heavy, they lived in De maybe the Dakotas, they lived somewhere in a very cold climate. But, uh, but buffalo hide is so heavy 
that even in the strongest wind, it just doesn't move. But what the white man gave them was canvas because the buffalo had been wiped out and because they were moving to a place even where there weren't any buffalo. So they had to make their teepees out of canvas. And in the wind, canvas flaps. And Crazy Horse mentions just, the, you know, all the sacrifices, including having to live in a terribly noisy teepee. You know, it's just like, who would even think of such a thing? Because we, the white people who are giving them canvas, well, it's so much easier, you don't have to hunt it. But not having any idea of the subtlety of their relationship to the world around them and how completely disruptive it was to be in a storm in which there would be this constant cacophony. I mean, my tiny experience of the first time I walked on those gravel paths, and the first time somebody walked by where I was living on one of those paths, and I, I just saw this whole dimension of our life was just going away. So tiny, but nonetheless, all of those little things. So all of this is to say, when we came to Ananda, we were in such a reaction to the material world, really. And, and just going back and recapturing God knows what. It was, a, it was a very interesting little bubble of time uh, with, a, with a little tribe of people, you know, that, that little crowd that was, was my tribe that all arrived in the early 70s and mostly just stayed through to the end. We were... Um, uh, Swamiji had to work with us because we were very Franciscan and just we had a wholly different thought and he knew that wasn't what we were doing this time. And so in... Uh, at his own level, comparatively, Swamiji was always living a couple of casts above the rest of us in terms of uh, what simple living was to him. And it took me a while at first to figure this out because he had a whole house, he had his own kitchen, you know, he had eventually had a bathroom inside his house, he had a generator so he could have an electric typewriter, and various things that, and then he moved to the house, the Crystal Hermitage house, and it was it, you know, it was just all so much more than the rest of us had. And so for some people, they felt very um, judgmental of Swamiji on that basis. Uh, he, he, <clears throat> he was always so certain of his own reality. He never paid any attention to it, except to try to help us to understand. But I gradually began to understand, you know, simple is in the one who's doing it. And Swamiji's life was more complicated and operating on a much higher level than the rest of us. And what was simple for him was more complex than what was simple for me. What was simple for me was a trailer so small that I could touch the sides and I had to energize with my arm bent. You couldn't actually go like that. You could only go like that. <laughs> All of us who energized it, you know, inside our trailers, we usually tried to energize outside. But it was, it was strange when you were outside because you were used to doing that, you know. <laughs> you couldn't quite do them because you'd smash your hand into the top. Um, but for me, it was just like nothing at all was simple. That's what I wanted. I felt very comfortable in that. And I didn't really, you know, more than that wasn't simple for me. It became quite complicated and confused in my mind. But Swami could move through all of that. And he had to just gradually um, awaken us to where we were and what we were really supposed to be doing. That's really, 
the, uh, one of the arts of the spiritual path I've really learned over many years is to know which incarnation you're in. Because <laughs> a lot of times it's not like your inclinations are wrong, they're just not uh, appropriate for the moment. So you have, we have these memories from some, you know, you spend a whole incarnation striving to succeed in a certain way, you naturally are, have that certain momentum and when you have shifted into something else, it sometimes takes you a while. Relationships get confused. You just don't know, I always use the phrase, you have to be able to tell the difference between karma and dharma. Because <laughs> you may really feel it like a karmic flow, but you have to decide what's really appropriate for this life at this particular time, whatever it might be. And Swamiji basically had to explain to us that being impoverished was really not appropriate for this life. That we really needed something else. However, the other side of it is, all of this belief that the symptoms of material success are the same as signs of spiritual development because it's an untrue teaching. And the other side of it that I had to face a lot when we first were starting in this area where, there, where that influence was very, very strong because when Ananda arrived here, you know, it, it was just a different, different time. 30 years is really a long time, especially in a movement like this one which is really just making itself felt. And... Uh, people would become persuaded um, by sincere meaning individuals but whose perspective on the spiritual path was below looking up. Master's perspective on the spiritual path is from the peak of the mountain looking down. And so wherever he's guiding you, he can see all the way from his state of self-realization to our state of delusion and everything that has to be traversed in order to get there. If you're halfway up the mountain, a third of the way up the mountain, standing at the base, and you vaguely are looking up, you really can't always tell which paths actually go. You can't tell where the real peak is versus the false peak. You know, Mount Shasta is often always covered in, in fog. When they climb Mount Everest, they talk about the heartbreaking reality of thinking they're at the top when they're not, because there's just one more and one more and one more first a sense of mountains that they don't know about you read just how heartbreaking it is they think they've gotten to the top only to realize that there's one more piece to go so a lot of people well-meaning in this confusion about mastering the spiritual plane as a as a spiritual the material plane as a spiritual practice tell you that you can do things that don't take into account a whole lot of other levels um, such as karma and such as um, real hard work. When we were in those early years of Ananda, it became popular to say, because we didn't have much in a material plane, one of the popular phrases was that you have to overcome poverty consciousness. And poverty, I'm not really ever quite sure what that was intended to mean, but, but it meant something like you're poor because you think about being poor. No, we're poor because we are poor. I mean, it seemed really obvious to me, but there was just this kind of, like the only reason you're poor is because you can't believe you can be rich. My observation was really quite the opposite. I felt that our biggest problem was that we didn't understand how hard you had to work for money. I felt that what we actually had was little rich kid consciousness, which is that we were just accustomed to having, in most cases, our parents. Somebody else had worked really hard, 
and we had a comfortable life and we just did not have the real connection between how much it really took to have what we wanted. Swamiji understood and he was always working a hundred times harder than the rest of us, always, because he, could, he, knew, he knew what kind of energy was required to manifest. And among the things over many years that he gradually was able to communicate to us was what hard work really looked like and how intelligently and determinedly you had to um, focus yourself if you really wanted to turn your life into something that also had a material, um, a, a, a material success quality to it. A friend of mine who put himself through college who put himself through college, he talked about how different his relationship was to um, what he was experiencing to his education than the people who, who, who somebody else was paying it for. Because he said every single unit of credit to him represented so many hours on a building site or in a garden or you know, painting a house, doing something. And every credit... Every class he took was so many credits and that was so much work and he knew exactly how many hours he had to spend and when he would have to spend it to have it. And he watched other people just being very casual about what they were doing because to them there was no relationship between their own effort and these units of work. But for him it was exact. And he put himself through and came out with no debt but he worked extremely hard every step of the way to get there. And that, that's what, that's the benefit of um, trying to use your energy to master the spiritual plane is that you get into realistic relationships. People were always, you know, talking to Swami in ways that he was amazingly patient with, but that were just so stunningly insulting on a certain level because he worked very hard. And people were suggesting to him that maybe if he just affirmed more, um, it would be easier. But what I was also starting to say is, People would come to me, and I called them refugees from the New Age. That's what they were sort of like. Because they had been involved in these well-meaning, but not quite on point, teachings that told them that they could cure their asthma, they could find a perfect job, they could attract an ideal mate, they could conceive a child. Whatever it was, they could get a new car. They, whatever it was that they wanted, they could have it. And if they didn't have it, it was nobody's fault but theirs and they just needed to do something different. They had poverty consciousness or they weren't affirming strongly enough or whatever it might be. But no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't always make that system work because there was a flaw in the system. And so people would come to me feeling like spiritual failures because the asthma wouldn't go away. And, you know, it was a delicate thing to sort of unravel it because if someone's committed to a certain teaching it's not <clears throat> it's not the best idea to tell them it's a false teaching unless they're ready or it's a flawed teaching until <clears throat> they're ready to hear it but they, they were refugees from that situation and you have to start over with you know the ego is not in charge that's why Swamiji's comment all failure is the result of a lack of attunement is a very interesting question, uh, point because we have to attune to something other than just what we think is what we want which is going to be better. Very complicated. And what Master suggests in here 
um, very subtle is really the word, what Master suggests in here that rather than putting too much energy in trying to make our conditions, we, it is better to rise above outer conditions altogether. And then here we are. Everything is two-sided. So let me just think what... Yes, many people... People live on many different levels of awareness, so no one teaching in this respect can or ever should be applied to everyone. I remember uh, Swamiji giving uh, two people in our community, one of them was me, completely opposite advice, you know. Me, he told to calm down, not work in such a frenzied manner. And to someone else, he, he basically said, work, work, work. You know, it was just everybody, me, he wanted to work more centered. The other, because my problem was <clears throat> not so much tamasic energy as rajasic energy running wild that needed to be tamed, to be made more sattvic. To another person, they just needed to get moving. And it was much less important that they be, be balanced than they, they just get moving. And so, for some people, like the mythical person that Vivekananda spoke to, whoever he was, he needed to put out energy. And if he was going to put out energy selfishly, it was better to put out energy selfishly than not to put out any energy at all. So that's what you sometimes have with people. You can say, and, and people do fall into this, you know, I want to quit my job so I can meditate all the time. But they quit their job and they don't meditate all the time. One man in our community who was very honest about that talked about, you know, taking early retirement so he could meditate all the time, but he found himself just reading the newspaper a lot more. You just find that you don't. So sometimes that, you know, that discipline, that, that force, that necessity to support a family, sometimes God surprises you with children that you have to support, which may not have been in your own plan, but in the effort to discipline yourself to raise those children, often the very spiritual lessons that you need are there. Swamiji himself talks about how completely uninterested he was in earning money and in the material world, even when his father, remember, wanted to buy him the tuxedo because of the social circle they moved in, which they simply assumed he would just continue. And he said, you know, Dad, save your money. I'm never going to wear it. And that was when he added, I'm never going to make enough money to pay income taxes. His father was horrified. <clears throat> just because that just wasn't his way and he just couldn't imagine someone turning their back on it. But then Swami found himself, so he went into a monastery. He had a salary of 15, uh, uh, an allowance of $15 a month. He just had nothing. He just lived in the monastery. But then he was kicked out of the monastery, you know, with a few hundred dollars in his pocket, just left completely on his own after 14 years. And he'd gone in when he was 22. He didn't have, like, a profession or any experience that way. So he's 36 years old, virtually penniless, sleeping in his, the bedroom of his parents' house, and he has to try to figure out how to make a life. So he sets out to serve Master, and he feels to start Ananda. And for, for years and years, it was all about money. Just every day was all about money, day after day after day. But his way of doing it was that I will not give my energy to anything except spreading my guru's message. 
So with the single exception of offering to train some Peace Corps volunteers going to India, which in his mind he thought would be to teach them about Sanatana Dharma and therefore be part of serving Master's work. It didn't turn out to be that way, as, as much as he expected. But that was the only job he ever took, ever. Just He never thought in his mind, oh, I'll go do this and earn money to do that. He just said, I've given my life to Master, I am a disciple, I will serve his work. I'll write a book, I'll record an album, I'll give classes, I'll just do anything as long as it serves the Master's work. But he would do all of it, and just, it was money, 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 money. And people around him, I mean, I was one of them who was idiotic enough at times to say, oh, don't worry so much about it, it'll work out. But he knew it would work out because he was going to do it. We were always telling him to be more spiritual. He, I mean, it was a matter of great annoyance to him. Many people who didn't last at Ananda. He said it was a matter of such annoyance to him because they would lecture him on not being so materialistic. Just trust God more. You know, just follow the flow. You see it'll work out. And he would work and pay the mortgage and it worked out for them. And it was so annoying to him. <laughs> but there was no choice. And they were, they were able to say, see, it worked out. You know, I just went to the river and I still have a place to live. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was quite a circus for a long time. And Swami, he, he often said to Divine Mother during that time, you know, I have no interest in this. Why are you making me all the time think about earning money? But then he said, and he had to say, but at the end of it all, the gain was spiritual. Because you, over, you overcame so many, the reason lack of success is lack of attunement. And it is mastering all of the various gunas and finding yourself just where you need to be. And it was Divine Mother just disciplined him and just pushed him and pushed him. And what he learned from it is it, all the gains were inward. So by trying to influence external circumstances, he gained an enormous power to rise above external circumstances, which is a lot of what you have to do. You know, I, we, it's a big deal. You know, I was actually just thinking this morning the situation we're in with our community where we don't own it, but it's owned by investors and we have to run it at a profit for other people who don't live here. And the, the real estate bubble that we're caught in and the escalating rents and just the living nightmare of it. I just said, I can't deal with it. You know, I tried to just try to think, can I just say, I'm going to deal with it? Can I just do this? Can I just say this isn't my problem? But what I, then I thought about Swamiji and the building of Ananda. How many times did he want to just say, this isn't my problem? But he couldn't. I was just reading, uh, working on, you know, the, the book I'm working on, 1978 in August, after he'd been around the country once and we'd had the fire in uh, 70, let's see, what, what year would I be working in? had the fire in 76, yeah, 77, 78. But we were still really struggling to recover from the fire. It was just a really tough time. And he was traveling the country trying to generate money, trying to turn our energy expansive enough to overcome this challenge. And he went to Hawaii, he said, for 10 days. And he just said, I just 
said, I've been supporting this community for 11 years, he said, and I am just tired of doing it. I feel, as he put it, I feel so hemmed in, was his words. He said, I just want to go off to a cave somewhere. But like Master going to Mexico after the lawsuits against him, he just, he didn't know if he'd come back. But so I said, every time I thought about going to a cave, he said, I just didn't feel any inspiration in the idea. And he finally just said, well, uh, Master has lots of disciples who can meditate, he said, but he doesn't have that many disciples who are creative as I am in their service to him. And he praised me for the creativity, so I'll just give this life to him and use my creativity to serve him. He said, when I thought of that, it, it wasn't so hard to come back. You know, it's just, he, I saw him many times. He just got so, as he put it, he, he wasn't, when he came back from the tour at the end of that year, he went into seclusion. He said he wasn't tired, but he was tired of, is how he put it. <laughs> and then, you know, there'd be sort of a long fill in the blank, and he would drop out for a while because he was tired of, and he had to just recover and pull his energy back. But he never stopped. But, but it's important for us to understand that kind of discipline is not effortless. That's a deliberate choice. And the Wake movie on Master was very helpful because so much of Master's life has been whitewashed. The benefit of that movie is that they brought out a lot of the struggles and the betrayals and the, I'm going to go to Mexico and I don't know if I'm coming back. I'm going to go to India and I don't know if I'm coming back. I've kind of had it with you people. He said in India they would... He went to India in 1935-36 and he said he was sitting under a tree and somebody just poured rupees into his lap and said, if you stay here, you know, we'll build a temple around you and we'll do everything for you. He said back in America, he had to buy the property, pay the rent, pay the taxes and support all the monks and nuns. It was just, nobody did it for him. In India, they all did it for you. In America, he was expected to do it all in addition to everything else. And after a while, sometimes... Just like Swami said, he felt so hemmed in by all of that. So these are just, all of these realities all have to be balanced. And interesting, you see, our line of masters, they all worked hard for money. Masters, it's a long story. Masters is a very long story about working hard for money. And when you read, which we don't have access to mostly, the letters between Master and Rajasi, tremendous amount of that. Is Master just explaining to Rajasi what he needs the money for this time. Just over and over, endlessly. You think about, well, Rajasi was there, but it wasn't so simple. Because Rajasi had his whole other life in business and so on he had to sustain. He just didn't hand, you know, all his assets over to Master. It was a constant balancing act between them. Rajasi was Master's Rajasi, but the the million-dollar gift that didn't come, I think, until after Master had passed or just before Master had passed. All those years ahead of time, he had to work so hard. See, there's an interesting fact, isn't it? Material success through yoga principles. Wow, that was a long and rather impassioned speech. So let's take a little break, and if you have any questions afterwards, we'll do them. That was like number 110. Okay. All right. Then we shall gallop onward to number 103. Oh, this is such a dear story. I suspect the Master was showing me, amusingly enough, another aspect of the above teaching 
one day. It was after a luncheon guest had left and I was sitting alone with him at the table. Idly, he tried to flip a fork into an empty glass by striking downward on the curved prongs. Several times his attempt failed, but he persevered. On about the fifth try, the fork finally went into the glass, which broke. The master looked at me, smiling almost like a child. But it went in, he said, as if proudly. He seemed to be telling me that whatever one sets his mind to, it should be carried through to completion, even if in the process the glass gets broken. How often in my life have I had to resolve to carry something through, even though I knew the very attempt would cause me personally great hardship? I've reminded myself with a smile, even if the glass breaks, my duty, which I've accepted, is to flip the fork in. <laughs> I, um, I know in one of the affirmations that we do on the Sunday morning, and I don't remember which one, Affirmations for Self-Healing, uh, my word is my bond, so also is my resolution. Which is really interesting, just the, re the resolution that you make to do something. I watched Swamiji countless times set himself a task, set himself a deadline, and then just sacrifice everything to make it. And I, I at different times, to his great annoyance, would try to mitigate the commitment, feeling like he had made a promise to nobody but himself. But he never, he, one time he literally said to me, get thee behind me, Satan. And I said, I'm fighting on the wrong side. He said, you are, very seriously, you are, and I don't appreciate it, was what he said. Which is, here he is, I'm trying to put, he says, I'm trying to put out all this willpower, and you're, you're trying to tell me not to. You know, where, where is the right side of this issue? But if out of the kind of womanly concern for the, the almost the motherly concern, oh, you're working so hard, dear, you don't have to work so hard, don't strain yourself. But that's not at all what he wanted. He wanted commitment from people to understand that if he'd set this as his resolution, he was going to do it. And, of course, that is also what gives you the power to accomplish. Swamiji on many occasions would say, if I said I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Just like that, regardless of the inconvenience or the difficulty, because otherwise your own words don't have power. Because you can just say anything you want and then what will happen? He, um, uh, Swamiji was extremely exact with language and it was, it was very interesting to me. It came up because I would compose letters for him. He would tell me generally what he wanted to answer or I would know what he would want to answer and I'd write a letter that he would sign. So I had to say exactly what he would say, and I wrote this in my book about Swami Kriyananda. He really trained me to write letters, and one was to be absolutely truthful, because if you're not truthful, you have no power. So someone sent us poetry, as people do, they would send him things. I said, thank you for sending your beautiful poetry. Swami said, it wasn't beautiful. <laughs> he said it was nice. He said it was lovely that they sent it. I'm glad they're writing poetry. But he said, what will you say when someone actually sends us a beautiful poem? Because now you've used up the word beautiful. And so it doesn't have meaning anymore. But it was, it was a very powerful thought, and I've never forgotten it. You have to tell the truth. You have to have your uh, words and your resolution actually 
resonate with the power of the universe and you can't just throw them away. That's why exaggeration is really a very, very serious spiritual issue. Even if you're just exaggerating with wild enthusiasm. You know, it's, it's like if you get in the habit of everything is always bigger than it actually is, then what are you going to do when something really big happens? The Swami always loved the, the cartoon where there's, you know, you're sitting in the mega, mega zop studios the, and somebody says, I think the script is colossal, magnificent. And he said, you don't like it? <laughs> because that's, everything is exaggerated. What do you really mean? But above all, you have to train your will so that when you say that you're going to do something, you're really going to do it. And it gets you really careful. And on occasion, sometimes I've accidentally said I would do something and then there I was, you know, stuck in the enthusiasm of the moment. Oh, you're sick at home, I'll make you carrot juice all week. Oh, rats. You know, now I have to make them carrot juice all week. Why did I say that? But once I said it, I have to do it. Once I, you impulsively say it, you have to put your energy behind it. But for Swamiji, which is a level that I, you know, I, I strive for, I can't do it. You know, even if he himself personally resolves and there's no um, external policing agent, he just, and he, but he would always joke, he always called himself lazy, which is a very weird word to apply to him. But he would always, you know, I'm, I have to finish this book before I go to Denver. I have to finish this before I go on vacation. I want to finish this by the end of the week. It needs to be done before the classes start. And then he would just finish it before it started, before the classes start, just whatever it would be. And sometimes when he was working, I remember once when he was determined to finish editing this book before we went on a holiday, which was a valid thing. He got up at 3 in the morning and worked till 11 at night. And in his pajamas, you, he, Swamiji had a, a very fine collection of, of silk robes because he said, this is my going to work clothes. <laughs> because oftentimes he'd get up and start working while he was still in his pajamas and sometimes it would be three or four in the afternoon before he stopped enough. So he, he liked to have colorful, attractive robes because he wore them so much. <laughs> it was sort of a joke, but not really. It was his one indulgence a lot of the time. Because it was true, you'd come over at four in the afternoon sometimes and he'd just still be there because he'd just been putting his mind to it. So it's just like, in, even if you break the glass, also in his particular case, because of the power with which he worked and the impact uh, on the universe that his energy had, often there was to be a counterforce. When he was really determined to make something happen, there would be a tremendous counterforce to it. And usually that counterforce uh, would attack his physical body. Uh, his mind, I think, was just too strong, but his physical body, so many, many times over the years, many times over the years, it was a, a fight with the physical body. Even um, the founding of the Nayaswami order came at the end of this month-long cycle in which Swami was so unwell that literally there was somebody staying with him 24 hours a day because, and he was just incapable of uh, taking care of himself. And he was, it was also a, the predicted time in the Brigu, in the book of Brigu, when Swami was supposed to leave his body. So, so it, and it really was, it was right on the edge of it. His nurse, Miriam, said there were 
half a dozen ways he could have just, you know, whether it was his kidneys or his heart or whatever it was. There were just so many different ways he could have just slipped right out. But instead, he... He's, well, that, that day I wrote it in the introduction to the, the Naya Swami Order book. But that day, he, I woke him up for a nap because someone was coming to see him or he woke up. I, I was on duty in the CC and I literally had to button his shirt. You know, I had to help him out of his pajamas and put a shirt on him because he'd been sleeping. And I buttoned his shirt just like you do your grandfather. That's what I was doing. And he went and, you know, I helped him into the living room. He, he, he gets from the bed and he stretches out on the couch. And he's just full line stretched out on the couch. I go back into the bedroom. I come back out and I, I thought he might have been dead. He was just like that. And, you know, this, a lot of thoughts go through your mind. But he wasn't. And actually, I believe during that moment he had a visitation from Master, either literally or in spirit. Because he then started talking about founding the Naya Swami order and then he said very simply this is what Satan was trying to stop by killing me you know this is what this whole month of struggle has been then he sat up went to his desk and by the evening he was writing a book and inviting everybody over to talk about it I had buttoned his shirt in the afternoon and by the evening he was writing the first draft of the book and was making plans to discuss it with everyone because he was he triumphed when he was working on the oratorio his, um, he started having, you know, in the medical term for it, it's congestive heart failure, which not being a medical person, when I first heard that, you know, it's, and it is just exactly what it sounds like. Your heart is beginning to fail and your body begins to swell up. So that would have been the early 80s. I think he wrote that in 82, 83, something like that. And his, uh, his body was not, his heart was not moving the fluids through and so his legs were beginning to swell and his extremities were swelling and but he just he he just declared I'll die before I'll stop I'll give I'll give my life to finish this if that's necessary he said just just very simply he said this is going to do a great deal of good and therefore Satan's trying to stop me and you know and you just you just had to stand back you couldn't say anything like we'd rather you didn't die it was just I've resolved to finish this and the obstacles are there and the obstacles don't matter to me I will finish this I have willpower like you've never seen before and almost always when he would push through and finish then it, the, the issue with the Naya Swami order was exceedingly dramatic but not entirely unprecedented it's sometimes when he just would push through it then, it, then the psychic battle would be over and his, body, his battles took place on his physical body because there wasn't a lot that you could capture through his mind or his emotions. Every once in a while, but, but not a lot. So it was just a warfare physically. For, for others of us, you know, the, the battle takes place on other levels and doesn't necessarily fight through the physical. I mean, and also, you know, people have said, well, are we going to have to go through what you went through? Oh, no, he said. No, no. He was, the, he was the vanguard breaking the ice because, I, I mean, I would just fold up and die. I don't think I could possibly resist like he resisted. So even if the glass breaks, that's just how he looked at it. Even if the glass breaks, I have resolved to do this and I will finish it. Only when Divine Mother made it impossible. When we were in San Francisco, 
when he was starting the San Francisco Center there. And they were living in a house. I was part of it, but just for a few months. They were living in a house uh, in the Sunset District. We had a three-bedroom house in the Sunset, and I think there were like 25 people living in the house. They, they were in all the bedrooms. Some, somebody was living in the closet of one of the bedrooms. There were people who had put tents on the roof, and at, at night they'd just climb up this outside ladder and go up to the roof. And the whole garage had been, we had curtains hanging and it was mostly the women, I think, lived in the garage. One of the neighbors asked, and what about the women you're keeping in the basement? <laughs> they were, all the neighbors were watching us. And then Swami was staying in his motorhome in the front with you know, a cord going and plugged into the house to get him electric power. In the Sunset District, you know, up in uh, wherever that is in San Francisco now. Yeah, it was quite a three-bedroom house. It was quite a scene. 25 people? Maybe that's a few too many, but not many. Not too much, 15, there's a lot of us. And uh, uh, Swamiji was giving classes and we were struggling very hard. And we didn't always do things correctly. And uh, he, he was scheduled to give a class up in San Rafael. And he always gave a free lecture. This was his, his method that he'd perfected. You give a free lecture and then you give a paid series. But we just started a paid series without a free lecture. But it was he who was giving it and just were too airhead to, to do it the way he wanted it. So when he shows up and realizes it's a paid series, he has never free lecture and only a very few people came and he'd driven an hour to get there and he was not impressed with our effectiveness. So somebody first said, we had two, two exchanges on that occasion. The first one, somebody tried to justify it by saying, well, Divine Mother brought the people that she wanted to have come. <laughs> that did not go over very well. <laughs> he said, please allow a little room for human error. <laughs> Just like that. And then he said, the difficulty is if Divine Mother made it impossible for us to establish ourselves in San Francisco, so it would be no problem. We'd just be impossible. We'd just pack up and go home. The difficulty is she makes it barely possible. And so she keeps making it barely possible so we couldn't quit. We just had to keep pushing until it came. But I've always kept those in mind. When we were in the Bertolucci trial and absolutely everything went against us, even though we pers persevered, Swamiji said at a certain point, the law of averages says that at least something will go in your favor. <laughs> he said when absolutely everything goes against you, you know that God has a hand in it. And you, you just keep doing your best, but it's... He, he always had this quality, which is he never doubted that he was doing his best. What does uh, the rest of us in, certainly speaking for myself, is this suspicion that I could have done, I could have tried harder. Which in itself is a satanic thought. That just that lack of confidence, that belief, that e exaggerated sense of personal responsibility is one of the ways that Satan gets in amongst you. But, but having doing that, it's harder to surrender to God's will because you believe that it was really my fault. But Swamiji never had that. He never had that because my word is my bond and so is my resolution. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so if it doesn't come out the way I expect it, I'm at perfect peace because I know I've done everything I could. And even if one of us, in some airheaded manner, managed to funk it up 
and make it not work. He, uh, he just felt that was just God's will too. You know, because there it was. We just, he made it as clear as he could and one of us blocked it. So we blocked it. There it was. What could, what, what could we do? He was always very easy about that. Sometimes he would become impatient when, <laughs> when we needed a reprimand. You know, when, when really it was just, we really had been airheaded and it, and it needed a correction. But it wasn't really because he thought it ought to be different. You know, there was just nothing in him that ever felt it had to be different. But the confidence, part of his confidence in that was the confidence that he had, that he always put out everything he could, and then it was finished. When he wrote The Path, he, he said uh, he really felt that, that Ananda's work would begin after The Path was published, because there was nothing like it. There still is nothing like it. You know, all that people knew about Master was in the autobiography, there was nothing. If it's 1976 when this came out, 77, there was the autobiography and nothing. There was nothing else. Conversations, Essence of Self-Realization, Wisdom of Yogananda series, Awake movie, none of that existed. Autobiography, zip. And so he said, one, it will make Master known. It will give people the idea that there's something they can do after they read Autobiography of a Yogi. And it will connect Master to Swami Kriyananda and to Ananda. So it will open, just open this whole world for Ananda's work. And Swami said, I'm doing the book because I feel Divine Mother wants me to. He worked, as he put it, he said he did 10 years of work in three years because he just felt the book needed to be done now. And uh, he said, and I feel that's what's going to happen. But if it doesn't, he said, I've written it because I felt Divine Mother wanted me to. And now it's hers. And just like that. He said, then, if, if it doesn't result in that, we'll just live quietly together here. And he said that at a time when Joseva and I were present with him. And I said, because I, you know, we were living in heaven in that very isolated. And I said, uh, can I burn the manuscript? <laughs> And, you know, just for a moment he looked horrified. And then, of course, he read, he read all the intervening thoughts. He said, very sweetly, though. He said, no, he said. We have to leave it in Divine Mother's hands. But it was a very, um, I mean, I vividly remember it because it was, every part of it was very dear, both the, what he was projecting and, and his own even, like his own... Um, appreciation for the fact that there was, you know, fame and success didn't mean anything. The only thing that mattered was doing what Divine Mother wanted, and if she, if she really wanted him to just live quietly there, then he would happily live quietly there. He didn't think that was what was going to happen, and of course it didn't. But to him it was he'd done his best, and the rest was in her hands. What an example. And it's, it's something really... And, and also one has to understand that this might be my best. That's the tricky part. This might be my best. And here it is. But what more could I have done? If I could have done more, I would have done more. Very, very um, subtle. Easy to say, harder to do is what I've found. I can say it philosophically, but it's, it's one of Satan's better tools. 
I just wanted to go back when you said that, uh, I guess it was many times, Swami would do something and then it would his body would be attacked and uh, negative forces. Is that something, what's, I, I guess I didn't get all that. What's the cause well, of all that or is that something that would happen? Well, um, we had this discussion after a group of people went to Italy and was, were going on a pilgrimage there and especially they were talking about Padre Pio and Padre Pio had um, lots of visitations from the devil in visible form you know demons and animals and just you know the devil came and beat him up on a regular basis and it was very weird and uh, other people in that tradition would have the devil would fight with them Um, and so the question was asked does that happen to us? Does that happen on our path? And um, it's a very uh, Swami never talked about devils like that. But I've been there on more than one occasion when I certainly felt that there was some incarnated reality. And later in this, Master talks about astral devils torturing his knees, and he talks about little demons, little imps and demons that he could see. It's it's a couple of of entries further. He could actually see them incarnated, uh, torturing him. And people's negative thoughts, I can't remember the exact detail, but somewhere people's negative thoughts taking a particular form of a little, a little monster, a dark monkey or something, just coalescing in that form. I remember once when Swamiji was working, when, this was toward the end of his life, when he started working on Yogananda for the World, that book. And uh, that was... I. I, it, we did, I did not feel like we were alone in the room. I felt like there were a lot of dark forces in that room. It just, even every time I picture it, I mean, it was, a, it was his downstairs office lit by electricity. But every time I think of it, that room feels dark to me, like physically dark. And I see he and I and Narayani and Dr. Peter was there sometimes, but not very many. And I feel like we were like, like there was just this tiny little globe of light and the rest of the room and the hall was all black. And it was so vivid in my mind in that form. But then I say to myself, how could that possibly have been true? It was the power wasn't out. But there was just this force that he was battling incredibly, extraordinarily intense. When we were in the courtroom in the, in the Bertolucci lawsuit, I said to Swami, Swami, I can't quite see them, but I can almost see them. I said, there's, there's just little um, devils, little demons, and they're rollicking around that room, just sort of screaming and causing havoc. And he said, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and they just were. It was, a real, it was a real battle with the devil. So... Well, if you're putting out a lot of light, the dark tries to stop it. It's very, it's a very, and, and the dark takes the form that's appropriate for you to be challenged. The form that may be challenging for me is, oh, well, maybe I'll just read another chapter of my novel before I'll get to work. Well, you know, I've been up since early. I think I'll take a little nap. Well, you know, or I can't really do this today because you know, I need to go do that. You know, just little things like that. I don't warrant actually incarnated devils. Yes? Just one way I've observed it 
um, in my own life is almost every time, if not every time, I've gone up to Ananda Village, um, you know, in the process of trying to get up there, something has happened to make me uh, almost not want to go or wonder if I should go or uh, wonder if I'm able to go or something like that. And, and often it would resolve very dramatically pretty much the instant I got there. Well, um, hmm. And it happened enough that it really kind of felt like like there's something that's mm. particularly watching this and going, I don't want more people going to that place. That, <laughs> that place mm-hmm. is too good. Don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot smaller scale than, you know, what Swami was going through. But, it's you know, again, like Nishikama said, when, if there's a lot of light, there's going to be something around, you know, pushing against it. It's the same size as us. <laughs> so it's, it feels big to us. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. It's, it's the one that, it, that, that looks big enough to, to, to deter me. That's a fact. You know, you were, ex- you were talking about the court case and the courtroom. And I had the same experience there. Um, it was so dark. And I, I think I had never experienced evil at yeah. before. Yeah, that was exactly true. And it drove me out. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It wasn't easy to be there. The They were really... It was a really, really serious attack on... It was a really serious attack by darkness against light. A very, very, very serious attack. And one that took all of Swami's energy and all of ours to stand up to. It was not a small thing. And it was the making of us. You think you want it. And we didn't even win. We, were, we were, had a judgment issued against us. We didn't even win. But what we did is we developed the inner fortitude to overcome external conditions. So what is victory? The local papers and the, and the, the public sentiment, there's a lot of enemies there that uh, came up to express that darkness in some way. Stuff we yeah. could handle. Yeah, it was quite an adventure. A great adventure. Better in retrospect than in the moment, but... But uh, definitely something that uh, has fueled a lot of deeper understanding that would never have come otherwise. I certainly learned a lot that I could never have learned any other way that I'm profoundly grateful for. I mean, you can't even say grateful. There's just no way to have gotten from there to here except through that particular path. I mean, these are the things you have to just keep remembering so that you get to the point where Swami was where even though enormous willpower is still required, the element of doubt is gone. Self-doubt or doubt. He had self-doubt. God could get to him through self... I mean, Satan could get to him through self-doubt. That was still his weakness. Make him insecure about... Not that he was working hard, but just other... So he, was, he said that himself. You know, self-doubt was still a way that he could be unsettled. Um, but never to the point of really giving up, just to the point of having a low moment on his way to success. That's victory. That's real victory. Okay, great souls. We did um, two readings today. We did 102 and 103. And that was it.